0: Welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. The following is a public debate on the status of Mary, the Protestant position versus the Catholic position. Taking the Protestant position is Mr. Clay Criswell, and the Catholic position is by myself, Paul Martin. Thank you.
1: Hello, my name is Clayton Criswell. I live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Uh, In the United States of America, I am 25 years old, and I am in, in a formal debate today with Mr. Paul Martin out of Australia, who is a Roman Catholic devout, and I'm very happy to be here today talking about the Marian dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. They are dogmas because they must be believed by Roman Catholics to be true. That's what a dogma is, according to them and according to almost anybody. That's what it means. It means you have to believe it in order to be truly saved. Which is also why the Roman Catholic Church claims you cannot have salvation outside their church. Which we'll get into another debate with that one day. So, this is called the status of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Christ. I am going to explain to y'all today using scripture and Roman Catholic official sources, meaning quotes from Roman apologists, Roman Catholic scholars, the Roman Catholic encyclopedia, and quotes from the Pope himself. So, not one Protestant source necessary. Now, I'm going to be talking about the immaculate conception of Mary, the perpetual virginity of her, the bodily assumption of her, and the title bestowed upon her of being Mother of God. Now, before I begin, I want to stress, Mary deserves all the credit in the world for her role as the physical Mother of Christ, as a virgin. Um, The only objection I have is exalting Mary to a role of royalty in heaven and claiming she never had sexual intercourse during her lifetime we'll see how that's biblically refuted where she, where it's claimed that she had a bodily assumption in the heaven which biblically that can be refuted as well claiming that she holds all the roles that are for specifically jesus christ himself simply because she is his mother um It's biblically refuted. If you believe Jesus is God in the flesh, then you have to understand these roles cannot be owned by anyone other than God. Who is Jesus Christ? Which is the biggest kitchen sink in the world. It's the fact that Jesus is God. And we'll get into that in a minute. I want to start off with the Immaculate Conception. What is it? What is an immaculate conception? Well, I figure the best way to know this is from a Roman Catholic source, which is one of my favorite pieces of literature ever the Catholic Encyclopedia. In the Constitution Infallibus Deus of December the eighth, eighteen fifty-four, Pope Pius the pronounced and defined that the Blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception by a singular privilege and grace granted by God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, was preserved exempt from all stain of original sin. Now, that's the key part at the end: preserved, exempt exempt from all stain of original sin now what is original sin let's be fair let's go with the definitions used by the catholics themselves in the encyclopedia again original sin may be taken to mean one the sin that adam committed or two a consequence of this first sin the hereditary stain with which we are born on account of our origin or descent from adam the manifestation of the masterpiece of his redemption, and the perfect preservation of his virginal mother from original sin—all those points are true, except for the last one. Original sin is a real doctrine. It's the first imputation given to us by God. Fully, um, we are fully sinners, and that's why Him, being fully God, came in the flesh and bore sin because he's not sinful. He's not born with a sinful nature. Why? Because he's God. He didn't just set it up for certain people to be born with it and not be born with it. That's not the truth. truth is everyone is born under original sin except for Jesus himself. That's why only his sacrifice can count. Now, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception claims that Mary is born without a sinful nature and has the Holy Spirit. She's without the condemnation of death for unrighteousness in the sight of God. She'd never committed mortal or venial sins during her earthly lifetime, which mortal and venial are Catholic terms for different sins, which is a lie in itself, all sins the same to God. Um she never faced death, that's where the bodily assumption comes in, and because of this, she possesses co-eternally, being alive, Of uh, the specific roles that are given to God himself through Jesus in the New Testament, which include mediator, benefactor, redeemer, and helper. And of course advocate, which that goes along with mediator, and so does intercessor, which they'll claim all day long it don't, but of course it does. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, did not have the Holy Spirit at the time of her conception. This is an easy one. Luke 1, 34-35 confirms this. And Mary said to the angel, How would this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God that word will is very important meaning it has not happened yet for her. Despite how you feel about it that proves she was born with a sinful nature just like every other human God created. We are all born sinners. It was predetermined by God to be this way. Because why would we need a Savior if there's nothing that we're helpless uh, to be saved from? You see, all sinners are meant to die once, but the majority of them will die twice. You can't praise God for Jesus being here to die for you and not praise Him for the sinful nature He bestowed upon you at your birth, which He died for. Um, An example of this is John the Baptist. According to Luke 115, he was born with the Holy Spirit, yet he was physically beheaded in prison. What does this mean? Uh, This simply means that having the Holy Spirit at your birth does not keep you unstained from original sin. King Herod even exclaimed that Jesus was actually John the Baptist reincarnated since Jesus' fame was rising after he had already beheaded John the Baptist. Shows how much he knew, right? So, original sin results in death. The only reason why we die is because of sin, um, which we'll cover in the bodily assumption later on, which is what the church must claim of her, since physical death is the result of having that stain. So, she cannot have a physical death if she was indeed free from a sinful nature. Now, we're going to look even further in Luke 1 again. Luke 1, she is a servant of the Lord, and let it be unto her according to the will of God. Wow, this verse really shows consent upon Mary's part uh, to be impregnated with Jesus. Um, this called the Annunciation, according to Catholics. And in their encyclopedia, it says, This verse claims it was the will of God, according to St. Thomas, that the redemption of mankind should depend upon the consent of of the Virgin Mary. This does not mean that God in His plans was bound by the will of a creature and that man would not have been redeemed if Mary had not consented. It only means that the consent of Mary was foreseen from all eternity and therefore was received as essential into the design of God, which is completely contradictory to their views on predestination, which we will get into in a whole nother debate. But we will see very clearly in two different ways, she did not give consent to something God has preordained, as this text says. So she used in the Greek the word doulos, which means slave, literal or figurative, involuntary or voluntary, frequently, therefore, in a qualified sense of subjection or subserviency, bondman, servant. For further confirmation on this, the word is derived from the Greek as deo, which is a primary verb, to bind. Bind being bonds, knit, tie, wind. Basically, she knew she was not in control of what Gabriel had told her. Can we confirm this? Yes, we can. How so? Go figure. Scripture. The angel Gabriel also claimed that the words he says will be fulfilled in their time in Luke one twenty, You see, Zachariah did not believe any of the words Gabriel had told him. And guess what happened to him? He was silenced until those things took place. Completely silenced. So, pretty safe bet. Um, no consent here she clearly acknowledged that she was being used by god for a good purpose and decided to do it um willfully and you know we can play what if game all you want but it don't work in your favor because you know scripture is final it's it's set in place and it's there for a reason and mary obeyed god and ob- and Mary obeyed Christ to the T. Sanyo, so Luke 120. She called God her Savior in Luke 147. Now anyone that calls God her Savior must have the criteria of needing a savior. Who needs a savior? One that's helpless to save themselves from something. What is that something? That something is original sin. Mary claimed God was her savior. Which means she had the stain of original sin. And she was subject to death because of this. She was born just like everyone else. With this imputation at the start of their life. Alright. In Hebrews... Seven twenty-six 26-28 Jesus is shown to be the only human to ever have an immaculate conception. Being unstained, separate from sinners, and not having the need to give sacrifices daily. You see, these three things right here prove that he was immaculate accepted, but on top of that, he's the only one that's capable of having these titles. And we're going to get into this later about being separate from sinners. Roman Catholicism actually claims that she is separate from sinners, although Christ is numbered with the transgressors, according to Scripture. Now, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, on this matter, and this is their own words, no direct or categorical or stringent proof of the dogma can be brought forward from Scripture. So nothing in Scripture can prove that Mary had an immaculate conception. All they can say is this, Mary needed the redeeming Savior to obtain this exemption and to be delivered from the universal necessity and debt of being subject to original sin. Another aspect of this doctrine is that Mary was redeemed at her conception and because of this, even considered by the Roman Catholic Church as a co-operator of the work of redemption of God's chosen people, aka the co-redemptrix. Now we're going to get into co-redemptions here. Because this is part of the Immaculate Conception. Now, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, again, by offering Christ in the sacrifice on the cross and by suffering in her heart the wounds he receives in his flesh, she actively shares in the redemptive work of her son at its most crucial moment. Now, First off, Mary did not offer Christ in the sacrifice on the cross. As we clearly see in Titus 213 13-14, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. Um, I dare y'all to also see Galatians one four, Galatians two twenty, Ephesians five two, Ephesians five twenty five, and First Timothy two six. She in no way possible biblically can feel the suffering Christ went through. Neither, according to Isaiah fifty three eleven alone, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the righteous one, my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Christ's redemptive work is finished, meaning not only can Mary not be a part of this work, it's also not a continuous work for anyone to be a part of. Now, Mary also cannot be a part of this redemptive work because she of the many will be accounted righteous, and her sinful nature was carried by Christ on the cross. Now, only God himself can take this suffering, because he is the only one born with immaculate conception, and he is the only one that is God in the flesh. However, he is numbered with the transgressors as a man, because he bore all sin. But he is in no danger of the second death in Revelation. As everyone else is in danger of it. That's the whole point of him coming. See, not only did he create all people, he perfected all humanity. How to be a perfect human. He showed that. Why? Because he created it. Okay, he is the only one alive eternally, and with his pardon, many will bypass the second death and be made righteous before entering the new heaven and new earth. To say Mary is not numbered with the transgressors proves that Roman Catholicism exalts Mary above Jesus, since Jesus is numbered with the transgressors. And um, let's see here. Due to this, Roman Catholicism asserts that Mary is the mediatrix along with Christ. Here's an official quote Through her continual intercessions, Mary was seen as the dispensatrix who distributed and applied the graces of Christ. The claim is, since she is not dead, she provides continual intercession. However, we see several times in Scripture that Jesus is the only mediator, intercessor, confessor between God and man. Only God can be the bridge between two people, which is God and man. God can only be the bridge between the two. Man alone cannot fulfill that role, which shows the supremacy behind Jesus being the Christ who is God in the flesh. If you're the Christ, you're God in the flesh. According to Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? And who indeed is what? Interceding for us. Christ Jesus is the only eligible intercession between God and each of us. The one who condemns is the one who died, is the one who was raised from the dead, the one who is at the right hand of God, and the one who is interceding for us. Mary, nor any saint, is not eligible for this role based on the criteria given in that passage. Also see Hebrews eight six nine fifteen, Hebrews 12.24, Galatians 3.19-20, through 20, 1 Timothy 2.5 and Romans 8.26-27 Now an advocate, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is one who pleads the cause of another before a judicial court. Now first John two, 1 John 2.1-2 states, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Christ Jesus the righteous Notice that. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation means enough. He is sufficient. It's His work, not our work, which is totally contradictory to what Roman Catholicism teaches about a sacramental system, which means nothing in regards to obtaining something that has not even manifested in front of us yet. Which is a whole other debate. The issue biblically with the perpetual virginity of Mary is not her virginity before or during Christ's birth, but after Christ's birth. Was Mary a virgin immediately after Christ's birth? In order to properly answer this question, we must know what exactly is a virgin? In the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which, granted, not written by a Catholic, but I'm going with it. A virgin is a person who has not had sexual intercourse. So the birth of Christ itself did not take the virginity of Mary, as some people say. However, Mary did have sexual intercourse with Joseph after Jesus was born alright Matthew 1 24 through 25 is clear on this when Joseph woke from sleep he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus alright it's a totally different debate on how many number of children Mary had given birth to after Jesus but it is confirmed explicitly through this verse alone that she did have sex. So therefore, she was not a virgin her whole life. Okay? So we're going to nip in the bud there. You know, um, Joseph and Mary literally knew each other as people before this. They were already betrothed. Okay? I mean, excuse me, she was already betrothed means she was engaged. Okay? The two were engaged. Why would you get engaged if you don't know anybody? Okay, there's nothing in Scripture saying that they were uh, obligated to be engaged. So, why are we to believe that? The word new has to do with sexual relations. He did not have sex with Mary until after she had given birth to Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, We'll move to the bodily assumption. Now, the bodily assumption of Mary is explained, as quoted from the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia, by promulgating the bull Manifestiums Deus, November the 1st, 1950, Pope Pius XII declared infallibly, so this is ex is speaking that the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary was a dogma of the Catholic faith, meaning everyone must believe it. Likewise, the Second Vatican Council taught in the Dogmatic Constitution that the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free of all original sin, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory when her earthly life was over and exalted by the Lord as Queen over all things. Um, I think it's safe to say this is an implicit dogma, meaning there's nothing in Scripture explicitly found about this. There's even an admission of this, according to Roman Catholic apologists and the founder of Catholic Answers, stating, "...no express scriptural proofs for the doctrine are available." Strictly, there is none. It was the Catholic Church that was commissioned by Christ to teach all nations and to teach them infallibly. The mere fact that the Church teaches the doctrine of the Assumption as something definitely true is a guarantee that it is true. Likewise, even authoritative Catholic theologian Ludwig Ott says, Direct and express scriptural proofs are not to be had which is a total example of Sola Ecclesia. You know, Roman Catholics claim I'm Sola Scriptura, and I'm proud I am. Um, I claim you are Sola Ecclesia. Simply meaning, being Sola Scriptura, I subject all institutions, all churches, all Christians, to Scripture. Whereas... So Ecclesia is subjecting the Word of God to the church. So anything that the church says is supposedly in Scripture. So they're adding and subtracting things from the Scripture, but under the mask of apostolic succession, they are claiming that these are revelations from God and that only through them will will you know these things. So I know this system has been around for a long time, but that's pretty much the definition of manipulation. Um. But anyway, we're going to move forward here because I only got so much time. Every person that was raised from the dead during Jesus' earthly lifetime did not assume into heaven. In fact, all the people that assumed into heaven did not die. Okay, God took them. Okay, John the Baptist didn't assume into heaven. He was born with the Holy Spirit. Lazarus, all the saints who raised up with Christ in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two 52-53... Did not assume into heaven they all raised from the dead in their normal physical bodies where they could die again now this Catholicism claim that Mary never died an earthly death because according to the exception, she should not have died at all she should just in the heaven, just like Jesus did, at any given time. But here's the problem. According to the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia, they say, regarding the day, the year, and the manner of Our Lady's death, get it, death, nothing certain is known. The earliest known literary reference to the assumption is found in the Greek word De Opito es Domenei. Catholic faith, however, has always derived our knowledge of the mystery from apostolic tradition. So this is a revelation from God, supposedly. I think right here, I mean, 403 AD was the first time anyone was ever asked about this by Eponius. And he acknowledged he knew nothing definite about it. So the very first time this was ever mentioned was technically in the 5th century, and he even claimed he knew nothing definite about it. So the dates assigned for it vary between 3 and 15 years after Christ's ascension. That's a problem in itself. You know, You first off, assigning dates to anything like this without proof is damnable. But on top of that, You're going to give just this broad um, probability of years after Christ's ascension. 3 and 15. Like, come on now. Two cities claim to be the place of her departure, which is Jerusalem and Ephesus. Common consent favors Jerusalem, where her tomb is shown. But some argue in favor of Ephesus. The first six centuries did not know of the tomb of Mary at Jerusalem. So, for literally 600 years after the church had started, they did not even know the existence of the tomb of Mary in Jerusalem. Now, here, here's a bunch of problems here. If Mary was free of original sin, she should not have faced an earthly death. You screwed up there. okay? Uh, Jesus did, however. He was free of original sin. And yes, he died an earthly death, but by him being God, he was able to rise from the dead on his own predestinated will and here's another fact too he was the only one to show his transfiguration before his earthly death in scripture showing already he had the reins on death before he had ever died he didn't really need to die to show that but he didn't have to do it to show it to us because we are subject to him we do not have his thoughts we don't understand everything like He does. That is why He did what He did. Because He loves us so much. Okay? He died to show you that He lives forever. He lived the life that we never could. So that way we'll die to this one and live with Him forever. Okay? Okay? Uh, the argument Catholics love to use when there's no direct proof for any of their doctrines, let alone this one, is called the argument of convenience. God could do something because he can do all things and it's fitting that he should do it so therefore he did do it. that That's exactly what's going on here in regards to these Marian dogmas. No proof at all, but since God can do all things, we're just going to say He did it. And since we're the church, you better believe us or you're not going to be saved. That's blasphemy. There, there's nothing true about that at all. And there's nothing in Scripture showing that the church is superior to the Word of God. You know, I was listening to Paul Martin um, the other day about... The church is the pillar um, and foundation, but you see, the pillar holds up the word. The church is subject to the word. The word's not subject to the church, and. You know, as much as I wish they were around today to tell us this, because it would be the easiest way to confirm everything that I'm saying right now, um, I have to use Scripture, because that's all I have at the moment, besides their own sources. So anyway, um, it's a dangerous argument to make, especially when it's not mentioned at all until the late 4th century. Now, The mother of God title is the accumulation of the previous dogmas that I have presented to you today. Did Mary give birth to Jesus Christ? Yes. Since Jesus is God in a human body, did Mary give birth to God? No. Here is why this is so dangerously deceptive. First, salvation is the key factor here. If salvation comes from Christ, then it's necessary for salvation that a Catholic goes through Mary to get to Christ. And since Christ is God, she is the necessary mediator between God, Christ, and man. We read, dear brothers and sisters, let us trust in the one who, as the servant of God, having been assumed to heaven, she has not abandoned her mission of intercession and salvation. So, literally in Morales Cultus, number 18, by Pope Paul VI in 1974, Mary is the intercessor between God and man, and the one that provides salvation. That is her mission, according to him. And this is recent, in comparison to their so-called 2,000-year reign. According to the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia, the title was approved by the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. This was meant to stress the unity of Jesus' human and divine nature. Okay, so, you know, we know that God is fully God and fully man. Well, they were debating this at the Council of Ephesus. Um, there's this guy named Nestorus who taught the disunity. Between Jesus' divine and human nature. However, that council's insistence on Mary being Mother of God was not the same as what we see in modern Roman Catholicism today. But they basically had to say that just so that um, they could show that God was fully man and fully God through Jesus Christ. So, In a sense, yes, but she's not the mother of God. Uh, Many modern Catholics think that by Mary being mother of God, she has some kind of overarching over God, which is true. Um, This is seen in Catholic paintings and literature where Mary is appealed as the one who appeases God. Who's the one who appeases God? It would be Jesus Christ. And who persuades God? God. It would be Jesus Christ. Okay? But they use her because she's a mother figure. The bottom line is a mortal cannot give birth to God, nor does God have a mother or father. God does not have a birth or a beginning and ending. He is totally outside of time. All humans are subject to time. That's why Mary was ever approached in the first place just like any of us coming to Christ. It was all planned. Roman Catholicism claims these aspects they bestow upon her do not claim that she's divine, but honorable. However, a creation cannot give birth to the Creator. It's impossible. Nowhere in Scripture does it show any of these bestowments upon Mary which has already been confirmed by Roman Catholic scholars, apologists, and the encyclopedia, and popes. These implicit dogmas, which are required to be believed by every Roman Catholic for the sake of salvation, are explicitly contradicted by the text we are given in Scripture. So, you know, sometimes you'll hear from Roman Catholic, Oh, well, you know, if it was in there, you'd believe it. Well, No. 'Cause the things that are in there, contradict the things you claim should be in there, and the claim and the uh, things you claim that are in there but hidden, they're contradicted. It'd be different if there was nothing for me to grab to contradict it with scripture. Problem is, all scripture does is contradict what you believe. Um, this is called deception. Uh, is purposeful lying for personal gain. That's what's going on here. You have people calling themselves apostles, claiming they still receive revelations from God, which the two things are not true. Okay, The Holy Spirit is the only one that gives revelations. And on top of that, all the apostles are dead. Now, Granted, they will be alive one day in heaven, if not already. But there's no more apostles on this earth. There never has been. And none of them are Roman Catholic. I'm, I'm sorry. That's just the truth about it. And sometimes the truth hurts. Truth don't want to be heard by everybody. Now, I want to go back to one key point here um, before I go. Because I forgot to mention A certain scripture Now We, we were talking earlier Jesus Was numbered With the transgressors Um, Since he bore all of our iniquities. Um, So even though he did not commit sin, nor did he know of sin, he bore sin. And according to the list of transgressors, um, yeah, he, he was a transgressor. But only because he bore our iniquities. This confirmed in Isaiah 53, 12, where basically it says right here in the English Standard Version, uh, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Christ died for sinners. Uh, this verse is actually confirmed in Mark 1528 and it's also confirmed in Luke 22:37 and 2 Corinthians 5:21. So I urge everyone everyone listen to this. Here's the question that I have, especially for atheists who may be listening to this for any reason whatsoever. Why would someone lie about something if it's not true in the first place? Like, why am I here today? Am I trying to destroy a religion? No. I'm simply trying to stand up for the truth. You know, God has sent delusion upon this earth through false religion. And you may be like, well, why would God do that? Because of people standing up for the truth, which is in His Word. Um, Thy Word is truth for a reason. And again we'll get into another debate about about how we got the word of God but the thing I need people to understand is every false religion claims that salvation is already to be had Uh, salvation has not occurred yet we know about salvation we know what it is and we may even know what we're being saved from but from that we just say yep um i'm saved Mm -hmm. goodbye not even thinking about what that means okay our helplessness has not been shown yet we have not been shown by God on Judgment Day that there's a lake of fire sitting right there waiting for us. And that He must be the one to purge us right there at that moment to wash us clean with His blood. All of our works are going in that fire and all of us are suffering loss. Not, none of us are going to be found uh, not guilty. You know, the the funny thing is, in God's court, when you walk in the room, you're guilty before proven innocent. And how are you proven innocent? By being pardoned. By given, by, by being given the gift of righteousness from Christ Jesus, which will keep you from evil and you will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven and i'd just like to say thank you to uh paul martin uh for letting me on i have a lot more but we have agreed upon a time limit and um yeah um can't wait for the rebuttal Everyone, have a blessed day and yeah, God bless. Bye bye.
0: Well, hello there. My name's Paul Martin. I'm 41 years old and I'm an apologist who defends the Catholic faith. For much of my life, I was anti Catholic. I was raised uh, in a Presbyterian minister's home. My father was a very godly, humble man, and I learned to revere the scriptures. And it was through studying the Bible and church history afresh that I converted to Catholicism several years ago. And I'm debating Mr Clay Criswell... Today about the status of Mary the Catholic position versus the Protestant position and I hope and pray that I can faithfully and accurately portray the Catholic position so the Catholic Church teaches in the Catholic Catechism paragraphs 2096 to 97 to adore God is to acknowledge him as God, as the creator and saviour, the Lord and master of everything that exists. Worship the Lord your God and him only. To adore God is to praise and exalt him and to humble oneself as Mary did in the Magnificate, confessing with gratitude, that he has done great things, and holy is his name. So in the Catholic Church, we very strongly affirm that Mary is not God. There is only one God, and God is a Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mary is not the fourth member of the Trinity or some goddess. She's a mortal human being who was spared from the effects of original sin. We're first introduced to Mary in the infancy accounts of the Gospels. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 28, Mary is met by the angel. The angel Gabriel says, Hail, Full of grace, the Lord is with you. Some people say it should mean highly favoured one, but the Greek word has the word "charis" in it for grace, so it means filled or full of grace. And later on, she meets Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, and. Elizabeth, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, says to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 41 to 43, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and crying out loudly, she said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How is it, That the Mother of my Lord comes to me. So she was calling Mary the Mother of my Lord, or the Mother of God, which Lord and God means the same thing. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 48, and this verse played a huge role in my conversion to Catholicism. Mary said, all generations will call me blessed. And I thought to myself, it's the Catholics who have fulfilled that verse, not the Protestants. The Protestants have not been around for all generations since the time of Mary till now. And they've given her mostly a very minimal amount of respect. But who is Mary then, and is she really afforded such honour, or are we giving her too much respect? Well, we don't worship her, despite the common accusation that's made towards Catholics. Rather, we give her respect as someone who played a very sacred and beautiful role in the incarnation of God. And we see Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was the gold structure where God dwelt between the cherubim, and the priests would carry the Ark of the Covenant around with the, the rods. They would never touch it. There was one man called Uzzah who touched it and he died. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant was incredibly sacred. Did the Israelites therefore worship the Ark of the Covenant? And the answer is no. But they did give it great respect. And Luke chapter 1 runs parallel to 2 Samuel chapter 6, which talks about the Ark of the Covenant. And 2 Samuel 6 In verses 2 to 16, it says David arose to bring up from there the ark of God. Luke 1, Mary arose and went to the city of Judah. 2 Samuel 6, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Luke 1, and why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 2 Samuel 6, the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Luke 1, the house of Zechariah. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. Luke 1, and Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months. 2 Samuel 6. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. 2 Samuel 6. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Luke 1. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 2 Samuel 6. King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Luke 1. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Mary has the the status of the ark of the new covenant but why exodus chapter 25 verse 8 says that the ark of the covenant was where god dwelt it was extremely sacred and mary's womb was where jesus dwelt for nine months so mary has the status of the ark of the new covenant As I say, the Israelites did not worship the Ark of the Covenant, but they gave it deep respect. So she's Ark of the New Covenant. She's also the mother of God. And this to many Protestants seems weird and bizarre because they imagine Mary giving birth to God as if God did not exist prior to that. Or that Mary is the mother of the Trinity. And this is utter nonsense. Mary is the mother of God the Son in the flesh. And that's what Catholics have always meant when we say mother of God. Why? Because Jesus is God. John chapter 1 and Isaiah 9 verse 6 teach that Jesus is God. Isaiah 9.6 says for unto us a child is given, unto us a son is given and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is Jesus, his God and scripture clearly tells us that Mary is his mother, Acts chapter 1 verse 14 and Luke chapter 1 verse 43. So Jesus is God in the flesh. He was fully God and fully man. And he, he, was, he was born of Mary. So Mary is his mother. Another status of Mary is the Queen Mother. In many different cultures around the world, in Europe, for example, the king and queen is typically a husband and wife. In Saudi Arabia, they have kings and they never have queens. All other members of the royal family are either princes or princesses. In ancient Israel, the kings had their mother as the queen. She was called the queen mother and she had a position of great dignity, and respect. And we find the Queen Mother and the King sat on thrones together, Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 18 to 20. And Solomon even knelt before his mother. Uh, I'm not suggesting Jesus would kneel before Mary, only to emphasise that being a Queen Mother was a status of deep respect. 1 kings chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 and verse 31 and she was given great dignity in 1 kings chapter 2 verses 19 to 20 and the song of songs chapter 3 verse 11 says that solomon was crowned by his mother and for that reason jesus was the greatest king of all the king of kings as revelation says and mary is his mother. So the other status of Mary is she's spoken of in the highly symbolic book of Revelation in chapter 12 verses 1 to 17. And the very end of chapter 11 in Revelation talks about the Ark of the Covenant being in heaven. And then immediately it mentions this woman some of this woman does symbolically apply to Israel, some of it applies to the church, but most of the descriptions of this woman apply to Mary. She's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars and that's similar to Genesis chapter 37 verses 5 to 11 where Joseph was prophesied there to have a position of great authority and power but under the authority of the king of Egypt and she gives birth to the male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter and that is the Messiah the dragon pursues the woman the red dragon is Satan but it also has some application to King Herod who was an Edomite, whose name means red, and who tried to kill the baby Jesus. Revelation is not a literal book, but nevertheless it gives some characters in there that certainly apply to Mary. In addition to that, we learn uh, about some of the other objections to Mary that Protestants have and one is that she was not a that is that she didn't stay a virgin they agree that she was a virgin up until her birth but did she stay a virgin and we'll turn to uh, Matthew chapter 1 and The thing about Mary is when she was told that she would give birth to Jesus, she said, how shall this be, seeing as I am a virgin? Now, that would not make sense if she was about to lose her virginity and get married. But what the Protestants point out, and they say, is, well, why did she get married to begin with and I believe the purpose God had in her getting married was because a pregnant woman out of wedlock would be stoned to death but nevertheless why would God deprive her of having sex after she had given birth to Jesus you know she'd done her work so why not get on with it well we're going to look at the scripture that is used to argue for this Matthew chapter 1 verse 25 says that he Joseph had not marital relations with her until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus Jesus so that's used to argue we'll see There, there it is until must mean that after she had Given birth, she had sex. But that's not supported by the Greek. In English, it seems to imply that, but not in the Greek. And I would encourage my Protestant listeners to read John Calvin's commentary of Matthew 1.25, where he actually affirms the Catholic rebuttal of this verse and explains that this verse does not support her losing her virginity, ...or having sex afterwards. And the word before or until is eos in Greek. That's used in Matthew chapter 1 verse 25. And the Greek does not imply that there was sex after her birth to Jesus. And this Greek word is also used elsewhere in scripture. It's used in 2 Maccabees chapter 5 verse 54... And it says, they went up to Mount Zion joyfully and well contented and they offered holocausts because not one of them had fallen before they returned in safety. That before or Eos, before they returned in safety. Does this mean they fell after they had returned to safety? And and the answer is no, that would be ludicrous. It's also used in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, which says, Devote yourself to reading, preaching, and teaching until I come. That until is eos. Devote yourself to reading, preaching, and teaching, eos, until I come. Is he saying that they were to stop reading and preaching and teaching after Paul had visited them? And the answer is no. Nevertheless, we still have to ask what about Jesus' brothers and sisters who are mentioned in the Gospels? Matthew chapter twelve verse forty six and chapter thirteen verses fifty four to fifty seven. And in the Aramaic Hebrew culture, brother is a title that's applied to a nephew, such as Abraham and Lot in Genesis 12.5 Genesis 13.8 and chapter 14 verse 16 and chapter 29 verse 15 brother is used for someone who was in your tribe 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 13 for your people the Israelites in Exodus chapter 2 verse 21 for your husband in the Song of Songs chapter 4 verse 9 for your ally in Amos chapter 1 verse 9 and for your friend in 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 26 and Peter calls the 120 in the upper room his brothers or his brethren that's Acts chapter 1 verse 15 Paul uses the term interchangeably brothers or kinsmen in Romans chapter 9 verse 3 and if you look at the the family trees given in the gospels we find that james who is often called the brother of the lord but was actually a cousin and james's mother was mary the wife of cleopas and she's mentioned in matthew chapter 10 verse 3 john 19:25 and matthew chapter 27 verses 55 to 56 she was not mary jesus's mother But the sister-in-law, that is, she was married to Joseph's brother. And these other so-called brothers uh, or cousins or kinsmen were James, Simon, Jude and Joseph. And they're mentioned in Matthew chapter 13 verses 55 and 56, Luke chapter 6 verse 15 and 16 and Acts chapter 1 verse 13 and Jude 1. And there was also um, Mary, the wife of Zedabie, in Matthew chapter 20, and Mark chapter 1, verse 19, and chapter 3, verse 17. And James died in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And John received Mary, the mother of jesus as his own mother in john chapter 19 verses 26 and 27 there would have been no point in doing that if she already had several other four other sons but she had nephews and he instead gave the responsibility to the apostle john to look after mary as his mother Uh, What did the Protestant reformers have to say about Mary? Martin Luther said in... uh, The veneration of Mary is inscribed in the very depths of the human heart. And that's in the Vomer edition of Martin Luther's works, page 313. And in 1521, four years after Luther had written his 95 Theses and I think that's the year he was excommunicated, if I remember correctly, in his explanation of the Magnificat said, one should honour Mary as she herself wished and as she expressed it in the Magnificat. How then can we praise her? The true honour of Mary is the honour of God, the praise of God's grace. Mary does not wish that we come to her, but through her to God. And he called her the Mother of God and the Queen of Heaven. Ulrich Swingley said, I esteem immensely the Mother of God, the ever chaste, immaculate Virgin Mary. And John Calvin, in his Calvini Opera, volume 45, page 348, said, It cannot be denied that God, in choosing and destining Mary to be the mother of his son, granted her the highest honour. And in volume 45, page 35, Calvin continues, Elizabeth called Mary mother of the Lord because of the unity of the person in the two natures of Christ was such that she could have said that the mortal man engendered in the womb of Mary was at the same time the eternal God. And in the scripture we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 to follow and hold fast to the traditions that were given to you. Now, uh, Clay Criswell, my opponent in this debate, has said that Catholics follow sola ecclesia, which means we follow just the church authority rather than scripture. This is not the case. We have free authorities. They're like the free legs of a chair. We follow scripture, which is divinely inspired by God. Then we follow tradition, because the scripture tells us to follow the church traditions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 15, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2, and several other places. In addition to that, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 says that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. So our free authorities are church tradition, scripture and the church authority itself Um, uh, Clay says that with the death of the last apostle there was no more divine revelation the problem is scripture doesn't say there was no more divine revelation with the death of the last apostle instead Jesus said to his church at the end of Matthew's gospel, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the world. And in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus told his church authorities, the apostles, that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And so we Catholics believe that God has divinely guided our church for the past 2,000 years, there's been some very evil popes who have come to power, a small minority, but not one of them has ever changed a doctrine or dogma of the church. And so not everything we Catholics believe is spelt out in scripture. The scripture does not talk about gambling. Gambling. The scripture does not talk about drug use. The scripture does not talk about stem cell research. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that everything must come from the Bible. Sola Scriptura is a doctrine that nobody believed until about 1500 years after the time of Christ, which was with Martin Luther. But now we get to the assumption of Mary, and Clay has pointed out that the assumption of Mary is not explicitly taught in Scripture. There's nowhere that says Mary was assumed into heaven. But we find it well supported in Scripture and in church tradition, and the church authority itself has ruled that that's what happened. In Psalm 132, verse 8, it says, Arise, O Lord, and come to your place of rest, you and the ark of your might. That's saying, The Lord, come to your place of rest, along with the ark of the covenant. And since Mary was the ark of the covenant, We believe she was assumed into heaven. Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, was Mary sinless and yet she needed a saviour? God was her saviour. Mary's mother was a sinner. We believe that Mary would have also been destined to become a sinner. What happens? We believe, we teach that Mary was rescued from the effects of original sin. If you fall into a ditch, you get muddy. And if someone pulls you out of the ditch and cleans you, they've saved you. But if you're about to fall into a ditch and someone catches you and stops you, they've also saved you. And so we believe that Mary would definitely have been destined to become a sinner if it was not for God's intervention. But why? Why did it matter if Mary was a sinner? Why did God even need to have a sinless woman? Well, my friends, Jesus himself was sinless, was he not? And if Jesus himself was Sinless should he have been in the same body as a sinful woman. There's an article in Scientific American and it's dated to december the fourth, twenty twelve by Robert Martone and it says Scientists discover children's cells living in mothers' brains and what this this is written 2000 years after the time of the birth of jesus nobody none of those early church fathers or early christians who believed that mary was sinless knew these scientific facts but when a child is in the mother's womb and that child comes out there are cells left over from that child's body that stay in the mother's body permanently. That means that when Mary, for the rest of her life, she had part of Jesus inside her body. Why did Jesus not get married and have sexual relations with women? For the simple fact that he was sinless and he could not become one flesh with sinful women. And that's why he had to be born of a sinless woman. And that is also why we Catholics believe that Mary did not become one flesh with a sinful man. For as saintly and godly as Joseph was, he was still affected by original sin. And that's why we believe that that just as Jesus was the second Adam, Mary was the second Eve. Now I've met some Protestants and they'll say to me, well, how can that be? Because Adam and Eve were a husband and wife, whereas Jesus and Mary were a mother and son. But see, not every tiny little detail of Adam and Eve is going to be mimicked with Jesus and Mary. But that was how the early church saw her she was the second eve and the spouse of the holy spirit now getting back to the assumption of mary why do we believe god did it well psalm 132 verse 8 says that god was going to take his ark to the to his resting place in heaven and the end of revelation chapter 11 it tells us that the ark is in fact in heaven Genesis chapter 5 verse 24 says Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 says by faith Enoch was translated so that he should not see death and he was not found because God translated him for he has had testimony given to him that before his translation he had been well pleasing to God. And it also happened to Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. James 5 says that Elijah was an imperfect man despite being a mighty man of prayer. And even Moses was possibly assumed into heaven because Jude verse 9 talks about the dispute between Michael and Satan over the body of Moses. And that He's quoting an apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses. And Mary, for that reason, we believe if God would bring men like that, assume them into heaven, how much more would it be done for Mary? Now, Mary was... Most of the traditions that are around that survive that say she was assumed into heaven come from the 4th century at the earliest. There is one source that dates to possibly the 3rd century and that is Liber Require Mariae, the book of Mary's repose. There are several different versions and stories of her assumption to Mary. But the main reason we believe it is because the church has that authority to do so. There have been Catholic saints that have had visions of Mary, where Mary has affirmed that she was assumed into heaven, such as in the early 1200s to St Dominic when he was given the rosary. And he was told to meditate on as in the life of Mary and, Jesus. and 1 Timothy 3.15, as I cited before, says the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. In Acts chapter 15, we read about how the apostles got a revelation from the Holy Spirit to discard most of the Torah observance, except for four laws. And we see that the church in scripture, had that authority to make infallible pronouncements. And is Mary crowned in heaven? Well, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says, He who overcomes, I will give him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcome and sat down with my father in heaven. So Mary has a status of great honour. But the question is, is she interceding for us in heaven? Is there any evidence in Scripture that the saints in heaven, including Mary, are interceding for us? Well, here's what the Scripture tells us, and I'll let you, the listeners, decide for yourself the scripture teaches and the catholic catechism affirms that jesus is indeed our only mediator between us and god meaning we can go just directly to jesus to talk and we catholics do go directly to jesus to talk for intercession And the Catholic Catechism in paragraph 480 says, Jesus Christ is true God and true man. He is the only mediator between God and men. However, the scripture still says that there are intercessors who intercede on our behalf. In Job chapter 42 verses 7 to 9, it says that God was angry with Job's friends, and it wasn't until Job interceded on the Lord's behalf that they that they were forgiven of their sins. James five, sixteen and seventeen says that the prayer of a righteous man avails much and is very effective. And Hebrews says that the souls in heaven are the souls of just men made perfect. Now, if they're made perfect, then how much more effective is their prayers and their intercession? Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, it says that Rachel, who was one of the matriarchs from the book of Genesis, was weeping for her children. Uh, during the exile during the time of Jeremiah and in 2 Maccabees chapter 15 verses 11 to 16 the Jewish Maccabean rebels had a vision where they saw Ananias the priest who was dead at the time and the prophet Jeremiah praying and interceding for the Jewish people And Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 verse 10 said that children have their guardian angels who are interceding for them before the Father in heaven. And in Mark chapter 12 verse 25, Jesus said that those who are resurrected to eternal life will be like the angels. And in Zechariah chapter 1 verses 12 and 13, we find that the angels are interceding on our behalf and revelation chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 says the spirits of the martyrs in heaven are praying to god how long before you sit in judgment and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth in other words it's saying that these saints in heaven are interceding and say and looking at what's going on the earth but are we to intercede for each other, or is Jesus our only intercessor? Well, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18 says, Pray for us. Romans chapter 15, verse 30 says, I beg of you, brothers, by Christ Jesus our Lord and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in the fight, praying to God for me. And Mary interceded. For the wedding couple in John chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. Where Jesus did not intend to do a miracle. But he did after her intercession. And he calls her woman. Which a lot of people think was a rude caustic thing to say. No it wasn't. Woman that's what Eve means in the Bible. Mary is the new Eve, and that's what he was calling her. The Holy Spirit also intercedes for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. And then we find the saints in heaven in Revelation chapter 18, verses 20 to 21, rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. And here's probably the most convincing reason for the intercession, is in Luke chapter 15, verses 7 to 10. It says that there is much rejoicing in heaven among the angels over one sinner that repents. Now, considering that there are billions of people in the world and there are hundreds of millions of Christians repenting of their sins continually, we see that these angelic heavenly beings have the ability... To see all these different saints repenting simultaneously and rejoicing over that, which suggests they've been endowed with incredible abilities. And just men made perfect, Hebrews chapter twelve, verses twenty-two and twenty-three. And in Matthew chapter 27 verses 46 to 49 when Jesus was calling out Eloi Eloi Lama Sabachthani my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the Jews that overheard him thought that he was calling to Elijah for his intercession which is something that the Jews of today are still doing. So we see that Mary was also regarded by the early church as a sinless person and we find the Ascension of Isaiah written in 1890 says that the Virgin Mary has borne a child before she was married two months and nor has a midwife gone to her nor have we heard the cries of labour pains. So she had a painless birth according to this early tradition. The Odes of Solomon, written in 125 AD, says that she also did not need a midwife and had a painless birth. Justin Martyr, in 155 AD, talks about Eve a virgin and undefiled and compares her to the virgin Mary who received faith and joy and Irenaeus of Lyons says that just as Eve was disobedient with the serpent Mary was obedient with the angel and there was an early Christian tradition dated to about 150 AD and it was called the Proto-Evangelium of James it's not a canonical scripture book but nevertheless it's a tradition which showed that Mary was a perpetual virgin and she never lost her virginity and she married Joseph an old widower after a divine revelation from God and Also, uh, Athanasius called Mary the Ever-Virgin in his Four Discourses Against the Arians in 360 AD. And that's about what I've got time for. We'll now hear the rebuttal from Clay. Thank you for listening.
1: Let's talk about Revelation 12, so you claim Revelation 12, about the woman, is Mary, however you use this quote, Revelation is not a literal book. So why are you comparing Revelation 12's woman with Mary, if Mary's a literal woman? Because that's where you're going wrong. The woman is the free woman out of Galatians 4:26, and I'm going to read to you from Galatians 4 here in just a moment but I need you to understand that you can't say that it's Mary. When it comes to the parallelism between 2 Samuel 6 and Luke 1, there really is none. And it's been proven way before this debate by Roman Catholics alike that it's not true. You know, those Roman Catholics who are very well educated in the doctrines that they believe in don't use these parallels because they know that they're not there. And they're honest about it. For example, Luke 139 referring to Mary being in a hill country in Judah compared to 2 Samuel 6.10 talking about David going to the house of Odom Edom to Gittite, which is according to Ronald Youngblood, probably located somewhere on the southwestern hill of Jerusalem. So Mary traveling somewhere in the hill country of Judah. Which Judah is a really big stretch of land. In comparison to Jerusalem. Which is just a city. It's not very big. I mean David's only traveling to the southwestern hill. Of that same small city. So it's not a good comparison. Also. Also in Luke. 141 and 44 you try to compare John the Baptist leaping in the womb to David leaping for the Ark of the Covenant because your claim is that she is the Ark of the Covenant but she's not the Ark of the Covenant was a type for Jesus Christ so we'll get into this here's the quote that I want to share with you from Mary in the New Testament. And look up these people. These are written by Raymond Brown, Joseph Fitzmyer, uh, John Rubberman, and Carl Donford. They say, This parallelism approaches fantasy when David's dancing before the ark in 2 Samuel 6.14 is compared to the babies leaping in Elizabeth's womb as she greets Mary in Luke 1.41 and 44. I mean, there's a lot... There's many more quotes, but I just want to. That's all I want to do. I only want to do two parallels because there's no reason to keep going with these parallels. We can go all day. Um, I really just want to get into the Marian dogmas. So I'm not going to rebut parallels all day. So look up that book, Mary in the New Testament look online there are quotes everywhere from Roman Catholic scholars saying these parallels do not fit and should not be used by Catholics to affirm their beliefs. Now I want to get into Revelation 12. You say Revelation 12 of course is about Mary and that this proves she's the Queen of Heaven, the Queen Mother, etc. Without this Revelation 12 Passage that y'all use, um, there be no queen mother or queen of heaven um, correlation with her because there's no reason for it in the first place. So, of course, Revelation 12's woman is not Mary; it is a figurative woman. Is the heavenly Jerusalem and we'll get into this right now as in Galatians 4 21 through 28 as I read tell me who you desired you who desire to be under the law do you not listen to the law for it is written that Abraham had two sons one by a slave woman and one by a free woman but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise now the son of the free woman was born through promise so this goes back to God choosing Christians before the beginning of time it's a promise, an inheritance something that's given to them okay, they are born of this free woman which is not Mary we're about to see who the free woman is now in verse 24 it says "These, these two women are two covenants one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar in Mount Sinai, in Arabia, corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, so we know that the earth, Jerusalem, is the slave woman. is a figurative slave woman. So here comes the figurative free woman. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Is the woman in Revelation 12 a mother? Yes. How do we know this? She has offspring. So we're between Mary, who's a literal woman, and this figurative free woman, which is actually the heavenly Jerusalem of God's dwelling place. So, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So, this is the free woman who is a mother. And according to Revelation 12, at the very end, the offspring of this woman basically declares the Lord as their Savior. They're, they're all the ones who obey his commandments. So, no, these people are not born of Mary. Okay? Mary is not in a state of exhaustion because of her role as Jesus' mother. It's just not true. The woman in Revelation 12 is heavenly Jerusalem, and out of heavenly Jerusalem, you have the church, spiritual Israel. Okay? the Israel that Jesus or excuse me that God was talking about all throughout the Old Testament you know sometimes he would talk about the physical Israel but most of the time he was talking about that Israel and we need to understand that that is the figurative woman in Revelation 12 because it says now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise in verse 28 so Isaac with Mary and every other Christian they're considered children of promise and they are of this free woman. So <coughs> Another thing I want to get into is Matthew 125. So your focus on Matthew 125 was the word until and you even gave biblical references on that word in the Greek. However, the word until is not even the issue. The word new is the issue. K N E W. We know that these two knew each other personally because they're betrothed. They're already engaged to be married. So obviously, this new has to do with sexual relations. Okay, her being married has nothing to do with her losing her virginity. Having sexual intercourse has to do with her losing her virginity. And she's supposed to have sexual intercourse with her husband. There's nothing wrong with that. It's stated in the New Testament that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, You know, you asked earlier, why did Jesus need a sinless mother? I would like to ask you the same thing. If God can do all things and it's fitting for him to do so, he must have done it. Why on earth did he need a sinless mother then? So your argument of convenience, it can go on the other end as well. And that's all I'm going to talk about with Matthew 1.25. Again, we can get into another debate on whether or not she actually had other children and Jesus actually had blood brothers and sisters. But the point is, when it comes to the perpetual virginity itself, she does not have any. She was only a virgin up until the time Christ came out. After that time period, sometime along the line, she did have sexual intercourse with Joseph. And it's perfectly okay. Another thing I want to touch base with you on and everyone listening the difference between Sola Scriptura and Sola Ecclesia. Now, excuse me. Now, you claim that. You're not solely ecclesia. But I think you misrepresented what that actually means. Um, solely ecclesia simply means you put the church over the word. And according to your own church, everything must go through the magisterium. Yes, you got three sources of truth. However, if it does not go through the magisterium, it's not considered truth. So that's really a red herring not on your part because i don't think you really knew that but on a part of your church that is a red herring because they're saying you got three different ways to find truth however one of them clearly has an exalted role over the other two and that is the church um that is why you are solely ecclesia because you claim your church's word on that doctrine or on that verse or anything it's concrete it's it's good and people should hold on to it and that they've been divinely inspired by god just like the apostles were and the prophets however that's just not the case they did not receive a divine revelation like they said they did and that's why you're solely ecclesia because you didn't do any further investigation into this not saying your heart's not in the right place but in a sense it's not but anyway sola scriptura i'm i'm doing the same thing except i'm subjecting it to the word of god alone um i'm not anti-government but all governments should be subjected to the word of god all churches and all people who claim to be christian should be subject to the word of god alone and The reason why is because Scripture is clear enough for us to read it and get the message that God wants us to receive and to apply to our lives and to know about Him. It's the only source to know about Him and that's why one day the Antichrist will come to abolish it for a short time of course until His return. Another thing I want to get into. Excuse me, another thing I want to get into is the Mother of God title. The Mother of God title is only bestowed upon her according to you because of Mary having Jesus. And I agree, that is the only reason why she has it. However, what you must understand is Jesus cannot be separated from the Trinity. Without the other two parts of the Trinity, He wouldn't exist. The Father would not exist without the Holy Spirit. So she indeed does need to be the mother of the Trinity in order for Mother of God to work. You can't do it the way that you say that you can do it. I guess to end my rebuttal I have a question for you. How do you explain Isaiah fifty three twelve if Mary is sinless? Because Jesus is separate from sinners because he's God. However, He is numbered with the transgressors because he bore all sin. So the question I want you to reflect on is, how can you separate Mary from the list of transgressors when Jesus is numbered with them? And that's really it. Uh, Everyone have a blessed day. And yeah, God bless.
0: Well, here's myself, Paul Martin, doing the rebuttal to Clay. Uh, In his opening, Clay said that Mary was a doulos, or servant, the handmaid of the Lord, as it says in the early chapters of Luke. Correct, but so was Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus took the form of a servant, and this in no way diminishes the person of Christ. But it emphasises his importance in doing God's work. He says, Mary is not our saviour. Correct, she's not our saviour. But she still is involved in the work of salvation. Now Protestants say that we're saved by Christ alone. But scripture doesn't teach that we're saved by Christ alone. John chapter 6 verse 44 says that the Father plays a significant role in saving us. The Holy Spirit also plays a role in saving us. John chapter 16, verse 8. And we ourselves play a role in saving us. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 says, Pay heed to the teaching and to doctrine, for in doing so you will save both yourself and those that hear you. So believers play a significant role. In saving one another. He also says that Christ's work is finished on the cross. Correct. But God's work on earth is not finished. God's work of saving people and doing his purposes has not been finished. He says that God no longer gives revelations. Well, not correct. In John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus told the church, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, I'm with you always, even till the end of the world. He also says that Mary didn't die. Well, she did actually. She died, she was buried, and she was assumed into heaven. And there is an empty tomb for Mary. The Catholics kept relics of saints that died, such as Peter and Polycarp, and they were meticulously preserved. And that's what the early church did. But the, there are no relics for Mary's body. And that, again, is a strong evidence that she was assumed into heaven. Now, to look at these points in... He brings, up, he brings up again Matthew chapter 1 verse 25 to say that it meant she did have sexual relations after getting married when the text says nothing of the sort. The text is simply saying that she had no sexual relations before she gave birth to Jesus which is to emphasise that Jesus had a virgin birth. Now John Calvin did not believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. But I'm going to read his commentary on this verse where he debunks the notion that this is implying that she lost her virginity. And Calvin simply says, we're not told, we don't know. This is what Calvin says. And knew her not. This passage afforded the pretext for great disturbances which were introduced into the church at a former period by Helvidius. The inference he drew from it was that Mary remained a virgin no longer than till her first birth, and that afterwards she had other children by her husband. Jerome, on the other hand, earnestly and copiously defended Mary's perpetual virginity. Let us rest satisfied with this, that no just and well-grounded inference can be drawn from these words of the evangelist as to what took place after the birth of Christ. He is called firstborn, but it is for the sole purpose of informing us that he was born of a virgin. It is said that Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, But this is limited to that very time. What took place afterwards, the historian does not inform us. Such is well known to have been the practice of the inspired writers. Certainly, no man will ever raise a question on this subject except from curiosity, and no man will obstinately keep up the argument except from an extreme fondness of disputation. Now, he also says that Mary was not sinless and, and why does she need to have been sinless? Well, I've got a cartoon of these Catholic choir boys talking and one of them is talking to the others and he says, so when this Protestant kid tells me that the only immaculate person in history was Jesus, I asked him to put his lunch in his cat's litter box. He said, ew, That thing is really dirty. So I said, you worry about where you keep your lunch. Shouldn't God worry about where he puts his son? Now, if she's the Ark of the New Covenant, the Ark of the New Covenant was the dwelling place of God and it was holy. It was so holy that if you touched it, you were struck dead. And Mary, to give birth to Jesus, had to be holy and therefore it makes sense that God would preserve her from the effects of original sin and Christ was not a type of the ark as Clay says the Israelites did not worship the ark of the covenant the ark of the covenant was not God in the flesh the ark of the covenant was a vessel which God dwelt in And because it was the dwelling place of God, it was venerated and treated with respect, but not worshipped. Jesus, in comparison, is God. And his dwelling place for nine months was Mary. And unlike the Ark of the Old Covenant, which was just a gold box, she was a mother to her son. And... Furthermore, being a mother is something important and significant. There's a cartoon which shows one man saying to the other, Mary wasn't so important, she was just Jesus' mother. And his friend turns to him and said, well, your mother isn't so important, she's just your mother. Now, he says that, uh, that 2 Samuel 6 and Luke chapter 1 are not similar, but they are. The scripture has recurring themes and St. Luke was using the language of 2 Samuel chapter 6 to emphasise that Mary was the Ark of the New Covenant. And while we could argue to the cows come home about whether or not this is the case, the bottom line is that Mary was the dwelling place of God for nine months and you cannot trivialise this, without trivialising Jesus himself. Then uh, Clay quotes a book I've never heard of. He quotes Catholic theologians that I've never heard of. If these Catholic theologians reject church teaching, then they're not true Catholics, and they have no business speaking on behalf of it. What I can say about Christian books is that they are, There are hundreds of thousands published every year. But does this book have an official approval of the Catholic Church? And the answer is no. Where I got my claim on 2 Samuel chapter 6 and Luke chapter 1 comes from a book called Defend the Faith by Robert Haddad. And that book has a nihil obstat, and imprimatur, which means it's been officially approved that everything in that book is in line with Catholic teaching. And what it teaches is the early church fathers themselves believed that Mary was in fact the Ark of the New Covenant and the second Eve. And Justin Martyr in 155 AD says, For Eve, a virgin and undefiled, conceived the word of the serpent, and bore disobedience and death. But the Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced to her the glad tidings that the spirit of the Lord would come upon her and the power of the Most High. And that's from his dialogue with Trifo the Jew, section 100. And Irenaeus in... Uh, against Heresies 5, 19.1 writing about 180 AD, says the Virgin Mary, being obedient to his God, received from an angel the glad tidings that she would bear God. Now, Clay says that Mother of God must apply to the Trinity. Therefore, we can't say that Mary is the Mother of God since she only gave birth to Jesus, but not all members of the Trinity. And this is ridiculous because then, by that logic, we can't even say that Jesus is God, by that logic. Because if we say Jesus is God and God is a trinity, then we must say Jesus is a trinity. Jesus is not a trinity. Jesus is part of the trinity, but he's still fully God. So when Mary gave birth to the physical incarnation of one of the members of the trinity who is fully God, then she is in fact Mother of God. He says that sola scriptura, sola ecclesia, uh, that I follow sola ecclesia. Sola ecclesia is just a Protestant construct and it's meaningless. Uh, We don't have a Bible unless it was for the Catholic Church authority that canonised scripture. And... Isaiah 53 verse 12 says that Jesus was counted among the transgressors and he wants me to explain what it means. Well, that has nothing to do with this topic. It's talking about how uh, Jesus was condemned to a shameful death on the cross. Now, getting to Revelation chapter 12, which he very dogmatically tells us does not refer to Mary Revelation is a symbolic book, and we see that, and in Jimmy Atkins' article on Catholic Answers, he sums it up better than I could, and he explains that Revelation has a lot of polyvalent symbolism, in which symbols have more than one meaning, and is also part of Revelation's imagery. For example, the seven heads... Of the beast are said to be both seven mountains and seven kings in Revelation 17:9 and 10. The woman in Revelation 12 is part of the fusion imagery symbolism that is found in the book. She has four references, Israel, the church, Eve and Mary. She is Israel because she is associated with the sun, the moon and 12 stars. These symbols are drawn from Genesis 37, 9-11 in which the patriarch Joseph has a dream of the sun and moon symbolising his father and mother and stars representing his brothers which bow down to him. Taken together, the sun, moon and 12 stars symbolise the people of Israel. The woman is the church because, as 1217 tells us, the rest of her offspring are those who bear witness to Jesus making them Christians. The woman is Eve because she is part of the freeway conflict involving her seed and the dragon, which is identified as the ancient serpent, in chapter 20, verse 2. This mirrors the conflict in Genesis 3.15 between Eve the serpent and her unborn seed, which in turn is a symbol of the conflict between Mary, Satan and Jesus. Finally, the woman is Mary because she is the mother of Jesus, the child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Chapter 19 verses 11 to 16. Because the woman is a four-way symbol, different aspects of the narrative apply to different reference. Like Mary, she is pictured as being in heaven and she flies, mirroring Mary's assumption. Like the church, she is persecuted by the devil after the ascension of Christ. Like Israel, she experiences great trauma as the Messiah is brought forth figuratively from the nation. And like Eve, it is a distant seed with which the serpent has his primary conflict. Conversely, portions of the the narrative do not apply to each reference. Mary did not experience literal pain when bringing forth the Messiah, but she suffered figuratively the prophecy that a sword would pierce her heart at the crucifixion. Eve did not ascend into heaven and the church did not bring forth the Messiah. Rather, the Messiah brought forth his church. So now we will go to the 10-minute closing statements for each of us. Thank you.
1: Hello again, this is Clayton Criswell out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama debating Mr. Paul Martin out of Australia on the Marian dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. This is my closing statement. First thing I want to go over in my closing statement are the things that Mr. Martin pointed out in his rebuttal that are incorrect. Only God is the one who saves. And I say this because when it comes to His redemptive work, What is the signification of the redemption? It's the forgiveness of sins. That's the point of redemption. You're being forgiven of your sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what it says in the New Testament. So, the redemptive work is specific. And that's why Mary, me, you, anyone, Who is not Jesus. Cannot participate in the redemptive work. And we also do not take a part in the work of salvation. When you were saying. um, The Holy Spirit. The Father. Jesus. All have a role in saving people. I agree. They're all the same person. Which is a red herring. To throw us in there with them. Is completely blasphemous. You're taking out the prerequisite of predestination to fit that in. If you would understand predestination, which it says it clearly in the scriptures that he does predestine, which there's nothing wrong with it. We're about to go over the reality of this. Due to this predestination, you know that everything that we do is on part of the predestination by God. So whenever Peter Paul, anyone, any of the apostles went up to people and preached. They did not save anybody. And they did not consider themselves higher than anyone else. They were very humble people. Um, they did not consider themselves as divine people. And the reason why that's important is if you were to tell them that they played a part in the redemptive work of Christ, they would disagree with you. Um, none of them shed their blood for the sins of humanity. They shed their blood for Christ, but that's only because He shed His blood for them, just like He does for us. Um, I want to show you a little bit on how this redemptive work cannot be of anyone but of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read to you from Romans 3, 23-26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So already, the redemption is in Christ Jesus. There's no one else mentioned. Also, God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. So what that means is God put forward Jesus as a sufficient Which means it's enough. It pays the debt. God puts forward Jesus as a propitiation. By how? By Jesus' blood. So just like in Hebrews 12 where it says Jesus' blood sprinkled is a better word than Abel's blood. That's totally correct. Because you got to remember this is God coming to you as a human. Shedding his blood for you. God himself made that happen and we are to receive it by faith as verse 25 says and this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's why salvation it's by grace from God and by faith through us. There it has nothing to do with works of the law. Remember, the judgment has to do with good and bad works. If you have one bad work, it cancels out all the good works. It cancels out everything. Alright, you are absolutely guilty. And I'm going to prove this right now. Romans eight nineteen through twenty five. I'm going to read the whole thing real quick. Verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Remember the book of life written before the foundation of the world? What did I say? Everyone in that book is a Christian, saved Christian. And if your name's not in there, you're going in the lake of fire. For the creation was what? Subjected to. Futility, pointlessness, it says in other parts of the New Testament, futile minds. So, this has to do with our sinful nature, it has to do with original sin. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. Who is the Him that subjected it? It'd be God, right? So, if God is subjects you to original sin you can't say that God did not predestine you to have a sinful nature. It's completely unbiblical. And he did this in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation but we ourselves who had the first fruits of the spirit? Remember, this is Apostle talking, Paul. Grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. What is salvation? It's the adoption as sons. All right. Even he said, "We wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, which is the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope." For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So, the redemptive work of Christ is strictly a work that Jesus Christ performs because no one else is sufficient enough to perform it. And he is a propitiation. That's sufficiency. That means no other is needed and no other can be needed. It is only God. Jesus' blood was the only sufficient sacrifice for the sins of humanity, for the sins of those that He saves. That is why Mary cannot be a part of the redemptive work and that is why me, you, and everyone else that is not Jesus can be a part of this redemptive work. I want to get into um, what you said That I said. Which was incorrect. If you listen to my opening statement. In my rebuttal. I clearly said. Mary died. I clearly pointed out. That in order to have an assumption. Based on scripture. What we've seen. The two people that we know for sure. Were assumed in the heaven. Were Elijah and Enoch. Okay. These two people. Before they physically died. Were taken abducted by god so we know that jesus was not assumed in the heaven he ascended into heaven okay this also explains um how he wasn't assumed because he died a physical death and rose from the dead he was not assumed in the heaven before he died um So in order for Mary to be assumed in the heaven, according to what scripture says about the two people that were assumed, and based on the information about Jesus not being assumed in the heaven, we must come to the conclusion that in order to be assumed in the heaven, you cannot die an earthly death. So what I was pointing out from the Catholic Encyclopedia was that they acknowledge that Mary died an earthly death, which is a complete contradiction to what an assumption is at all. That is, a, I mean, that's really the whole reason why I reject that doctrine. Also, it's there because apparently she's not stained with original sin. If she's stained with original sin, she must die an earthly death. So that's why the assumption of Mary is thrown in there. It's, it's all part of, if you're going to lie, make it a good one. If you're going to say that she's immaculate seed and without original sin, then you must say that she is soon into heaven. Because if she dies an earthly death, then it clearly shows that she had original sin and was imperfect and died. Just like the scripture said that people are all subjected to. We're all subjected to die once. Many will die twice. The second death. That's what I said. So no, I don't believe Mary didn't die. I believe she did die. And I don't believe that she is soon into heaven. I have no reason to believe that. Um, getting back to Matthew one twenty five, Again, we've been on new and until... Um... Here's the bottom line. We know that these two people knew each other mentally, emotionally. They did not know each other physically until Christ's birth. That word until means the event before the word until is going to take place after the time that is given after the word until. So this verse clearly means that Joseph knew his wife. Physically speaking, through sexual relations, after the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what it clearly says. It would be just like me saying, Paul, if I wrote a book about you and I said, Paul did not have sex with his wife until after she gave birth to her child. What am I saying? I'm saying that you indeed did have sex with your wife after she gave birth to a child. That, that's the whole thing here. Twist it how you want to. You know, hold on to the Catholic rhetoric. That's okay. It's still incorrect. Um. Isaiah 53, 12. It has everything to do with this. Why? Because Jesus bearing all sin, even though he was sinless on the earth, by the law standard, and by him being God, um... If he's numbered with the transgressors on the list, then according to to Catholic doctrine, Mary's not on the list. If Jesus is on the list and Mary is not, how are you not exalting Mary over Jesus? And that's all I'm going to leave with with that. Because I never asked you what the verse meant. I asked you that question specifically about Mary not being listed with the transgressors, even though Jesus is. And last but not least, solely ecclesia. You are solely ecclesia because although you mentioned the three foundations of truth, according to the Roman Catholic Church, you did not include the reality that if the truth does not go through the church's magisterium, it's not considered truth. So clearly, clearly there's a contradiction in what you're saying. Because you're naming three things, but not showing where the church is exalted over the other two. Okay, if it's shown in scripture, cool. If it's shown in scripture and tradition, cool. But if the magisterium says it doesn't exist, then that's what happens. Okay? That that's all I gotta say about it. You are solo ecclesia, just like I'm solo scriptura. And I guess the last thing I'm going to say in closing, uh, by the way, thank you, Paul. I hope we get to have more uh, debates, hopefully live debates. I think that'd be fun, having a good live debate that people can tune in to, really learn something. Um, But I'm just going to leave everyone with this. If you have faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and you try as hard as you possibly can in this life. You're going to be okay. I guarantee it. I guarantee you that Jesus Christ is not going to leave you hanging. If you clearly know the scripture and clearly follow what it says. Which is to have faith in Christ's work. And and clearly taking in the true uh, interpretations of verses like Romans 819 and 20 and 21 um, being able being able to read these things and see that they are self-interpreted by the people that wrote them and ultimately by the Holy Spirit it's going to free you from the subjection to I guess human institution um the the bottom line is, If you want freedom, go to Christ. If you want freedom, go to his word. You're not going to find freedom going to a church. And I guess the last thing I'll throw in is, in order to be a part of the true church, which is in heaven, by the way, you must already be saved. And God bless you, everyone. Goodbye.
0: Well, Paul Martin here with my closing statement. And before I run out of time or forget, I'm just going to say first and foremost a deep, heartfelt thanks to Mr Clay Criswell for having this debate. In fact, he was the one who approached me, and I thought that's a great idea. It's also in the spirit of the Vatican II Council, which encouraged open dialogue with people of different beliefs. It was a great opportunity and I look forward to other debates with him in the near future. Uh, Firstly, uh, he says that Matthew chapter 1 verse 25, if someone was to say that about me and my wife, it would imply there was sexual relations. He's quite correct in saying that, but that's in English, in English, it seems to imply that. In the original Koine Greek, it does not imply that. And if you study Koine Greek, like I have, you learn that when you translate things into another language, you sometimes lose or change the meaning. Now, he says that Mary died. And points out that we Catholics also affirm that she died before her assumption. And what the Catholic Church believes is that she died a natural death. She was buried in a tomb and then she was resurrected and assumed up to heaven. And Mr Criswell says that can't be because Enoch and Elijah were also assumed into heaven and they didn't die. And yet we find that Moses died at the end of Deuteronomy and it's implied that he was assumed into heaven in Jude. However, there is no biblical rule that says you must have not died in order to be assumed into heaven. Those are just two examples. And he also gives a very valid point He says, if Mary was not born with original sin, why did she die a natural death? To which I'd point out, well, yes, Jesus also died a natural death. He also was killed on the cross and he had no original sin and yet he still died. Mary herself and Jesus were allowed to suffer to identify with the suffering of the human race. And it was foretold of Mary that a sword shall pierce your heart, which is generally agreed that that refers to the great pain and agony of seeing her son uh, whipped, humiliated and slowly tortured to death on the cross. So she was allowed to suffer pain, physical, uh, emotional And it was so she could identify with with us. Um, He also points out and says that I follow sola ecclesia. Sola means only. We Catholics don't only follow one. We follow all three, scripture, tradition and the church authority. We don't see them as being in conflict Now Mr Criswell, being a Protestant, sees those things as being in conflict and from his perspective is you've got to choose one or the other. We Catholics don't see it that way. And sola scriptura, the problem with that position is it doesn't tell you where you got the Bible from. I can ask any Protestant, show me in Scripture where is your list of books that belong in the Bible. And nobody would be silly enough to say that the table of contents in their Bible is inspired. And they'll say, well, you know, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John tell us about Jesus, clearly that's scripture, to which I say yes. And then they can say that, look, Romans and Corinthians was written by Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, And you can do that with most books of the Bible, but you can't do it with all of them. For example, the Song of Solomon, where in Scripture does it say that that book belongs in Scripture? Or Esther? Or Ezra and Nehemiah? Or 1 and 2 Chronicles? And the Scripture, we only got a Bible until 382 A.D., under Pope Damasus it was called the Bible by his successor Pope Syracus it was only by church authority that we even got a canon of scripture and it was because the church had the authority to say revelation is scripture but the shepherd of Hermes is not the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians is scripture but the epistle of Barnabas is not And it was only through church authority that they declared which books are in the Bible. And the very first Bible canon that the church itself authorised was made up of 73 books. And that is the 73 books we have in the Catholic Bible. I realise this is a bit off topic, but it was brought up. And that's what I have to say in response to... Sola Scriptura. Uh, Marian visions have been well attested to in throughout history. In twelve fifteen AD, Saint Dominic was given the rosary by an apparition of Mary. And there was a small number of Catholics who were outnumbered about 20 to 1 by the Albigensians, a Gnostic sect in France. They were taking over southern France. They believed in sexual immorality. They mutilated the Bible and uttered all these blasphemies. And after St. Dominic prayed the rosary, an army of just a few thousand... Catholics took on over 20,000 Albigensians and defeated them, and the Albigensian Gnostic heresy went into permanent irreversible decline after that. In the Battle of Lepanto in 1571 or thereabouts, the Catholics were heavily outnumbered by Muslims who were invading Europe, and they... and. By praying the rosary, they inflicted a devastating defeat on the Muslims and on the Ottoman Empire. In Lourdes, France, in 1858, a 14-year-old girl called Bernadette Soubirous had a, a vision of Mary, and a spring miraculously appeared after that at Lourdes. And as a result of that, since then, those springs have been responsible for the miraculous healings of thousands of people. And even some Protestants have recognised the validity of Lourdes In 1917, three young shepherd children in Fatima, Portugal, encountered apparitions of the Virgin Mary. And eventually a crowd of 70,000 people gathered and they saw the sun rapidly moving around the sky as a sign and wonder, and many people were healed. At this point you might say, ah, well, they were all Catholics. No, a lot of the people that came there went there to mock and ridicule it, and yet they went away astonished at this sign and wonder that's about enough on Mary Um, I'll, I'll spend the remainder of the time addressing his other topic which technically it's not to do with Mary but he brought it up on salvation so it deserves an answer he says only God saves us by his blood that's correct he says that God has predestined us to be saved that's also correct And salvation is about our adoption as sons. Also correct, but we Catholics differ slightly. We Catholics believe in predestination, but we believe God has predestined all people to be saved. That does not mean that all people get saved because God includes in his predestination man's free will. And humans can reject God God does not force anyone to love him. He wants us to love him because we want to, not because we were made to. He says God only saves us by his blood. In a sense, that is true. In another sense, it's not. And what I'll explain is it's like if you're in a flood and you're about to drown and a helicopter comes over and lowers its rope and over the loudspeaker says get in and you grab the rope and you're saved. Who saved you? Did you save yourself by grabbing the rope or did the helicopter save you? I think you'd be pretty arrogant to say you saved yourself. But it it really is... uh, primarily the helicopter that saves you, but you yourself still have to make that choice, that decision, to follow God. And 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 16, says, pay heed to yourself and to the teaching, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and those that hear you. So, in that sense, his blood is what, Saves us, what is atone for our sins, but we also have to believe in Him. John three sixteen, Acts sixteen thirty one. We also have to repent. Acts chapter two verse thirty eight and two Peter three nine. Baptism also saves us. Titus three five and one Peter chapter three verse twenty one. Uh, John chapter 6, in the latter verses of that chapter, Jesus says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. That's the Eucharist. And we also have to declare with our mouths our faith in Christ. Romans 10, 9 and Luke 12, verse 8. And we are also justified, not by faith alone, but by works, as Jesus. James chapter 2 verses 20 to 25 say. Uh, Even Martin Luther himself said, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith, my friends, but faith without works is dead. Noah was saved by faith, but his faith involved building the ark works in and of themselves do not save you and they do not make you right with God this is what we Catholics teach but works are part of your faith without which you cannot be saved and I tell you what Noah and his family certainly would not have been saved from that flood if they had not built that ark And we are also saved by keeping his commandments in Matthew chapter 19 verse 17. And we're justified by our words, Matthew chapter 12 verse 37. So salvation does come through the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. That's God's part. It's like the helicopter that comes and offers to save you. But you yourself must be obedient and must accept it. And I agree with him. If you have faith in Christ, you will be okay. You will be saved. But if you have sin in your life, you'll need cleansing in purgatory. And both Protestants and Catholics agree that when you die as a Christian, you die as an imperfect person and then we both agree that once in heaven you are made perfect so the question is what happens do you get cleansed and made perfect and the answer is yes that's what we call purgatory I want to say a heartfelt thanks once again to Mr Clay Criswell for this great debate where I believe we conducted ourselves as Christian gentlemen, and that's how it should be. And I want to thank everyone who has tuned in to listen to this debate. Whatever your decision is, remember the choice is yours. Thank you for listening, and God bless.